warts, warts, warts. Even as we are sitting here this morning in church, if we wanted to, I'm certainly not encouraging you to do this, but if you wanted to take your mobile phone out, those of us who do have that, and to go on to a social media site that we may follow, or even just go on to the general internet, as I say, I'm not suggesting you do that. If I see a phone coming out, actually, I'll be, I'll, be, I'll be chasing up after the service and say, what were you looking at? But nonetheless, if you were to do that, you would find that even as we sit here this morning, the air, although we can't see it, the air round about us is filled with words and pictures. Our senses, if we do use any form of social media platform, could be bombarded by people saying things, talking about things, expressing their opinions about someone else, or about what's in the news, or about what's happening in their life. And while, of course, some of the things that are expressed on these platforms are good and well-intentioned and helpful, or at least of interest to the family that follow them and their WhatsApp group or whatever else, we're also aware that some of the things that are round about, did quite a lot of the things that appear, these words, these images, and Lenten Day images are simply words being painted out, ideas being expressed, we're only too well aware of how damaging that can be the case of that poor girl persuaded to commit suicide by things she had seen and followed on the internet in the case this week as the review of that and the discussion of that came to the headlines. How easily words which can encourage, which can express love, which can be positive and wholesome and uplifting, how easily those words can be misunderstood or words can be used to cause real damage. And of course, our own government has discovered that, hasn't it? The Chancellor got up last Friday, a week past on Friday, and made his statement and his words, and actually none of the things have as yet been enacted. They'll have to be enacted through Parliament, and Parliament as yet has not agreed to the things that he suggested or said proposed. But nonetheless, already his words have had major impact on our economy, the value of the pound, on the mortgages that some of us will have or hope to have. Words are powerful. That's perhaps why in the book of James, when James speaks of this, he talks about this. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, he says, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. And he goes on to say, with the tongue we can praise our Lord and Father, and with it we can curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth comes praise and cursing. And of course the writer says, brothers and sisters, should this should not be so. The power of words. Well, in the passage that we're just looking at, or the verses we're just looking at this morning, Paul is wanting to cause us to consider how powerful are the words that he, or at least his scribe, has already penned. Now, of course, when this letter was written to the church in Rome, 
written by Paul, then it wouldn't have been sent out in chapters or the way it's laid out there. It was a letter. But nonetheless, it's a very lengthy letter, a very full letter. And at various times during this letter, he wanted the hearers to take time to stop and to think, to listen, in a sense, to what has been said and to consider its significance. It's not just, it's not just writing the letter. He's not writing the letter for the fun of it, nor is he simply writing the letter in order to express his own understanding of the Christian faith. He's wanting the words here to not only inform the mind, but as you shall see in a few minutes, to transform lives and to cause people to have a new way of thinking and being. So if you do have a Bible, then I encourage you to flick back, actually, the very beginning of this letter, the letter that he writes to the church in Rome. He, and some time ago, not that long ago now, we looked at the first chapter and the second chapter of this letter. It's a letter written, we're told, in Romans 1 and verse 1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his Son. And he then says in verse 7, to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people. And so he's writing to people, he's writing to a real setting, a real situation, to real time. And I think before we go any further, it's important that that is at the very basis of our understanding of the God who speaks. The God who spoke, Genesis tells us, and brought everything into being. The God that John tells us, whose word became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. God speaks to our world. He speaks into our setting, into our lives, to real people in a real place, in a real time not just floating about in the air or the vastness and the, the emptiness of the universe. God's word speaks to and into lives and settings to all who are in Rome, but also to all who take time to read these words and this letter today. And in that opening chapter in the book of Romans, he talks about the reality of the world. We're not going to spend time on all of that, but someone who would have been very much aware of the culture and of the religious spirit and the philosophies and the actions of people in that first century world, he says this is the backdrop to what God has said in Jesus Christ, the one that he has promised. This is the scene setting. And so we're told in verse 18 that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godliness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. We're told in verse 21, that although they you God, they neither glorified him as God, nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, Paul writes, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts and were told they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. 
And Paul goes on to explain what that means, the impact that has, that in society, in real time, in real life, and in real situation, we see the folly when human beings decide to worship themselves or things that they have fashioned. And of course, we don't live in a day within our own society where there's there's statues outside or on the streets or on the shops or on the street corners where people bow down. But we do live in a day where people worship creative things rather than the creator. They worship themselves. They worship their bank balance. They worship materialism. They worship a human philosophy. They give their lives over to a whole host of things. Some of them okay, some of them not. Some of them helpful, some of them certainly not. But people give themselves over to all these kinds of things rather then worship the true and living God. And the consequences is felt in society, in our lives, in trying to bring up a family, in the current world in which we live, and in all the different ways in which folly and foolishness is experienced and testified to. And Paul then, with no attention, don't worry, we're going through the whole book of Romans, we'll be here all day and longer. But Paul then continues to explore what that means by looking then in chapters 2, he says, you therefore, verse 1, have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. He says, if that's the state of the world, if that's the need of humanity, the brokenness of the world in which we live, just before he says, writing to religious people, just before you think, well, I'm okay, then no. Remember what Jesus said, the speck in your brother's eye, but what about the log in your own? We are all sinners. And he goes on to speak about that. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. No one is righteous. No, not one. Romans 3 and 23. There is a brokenness that is pervasive through the whole of humanity. I, the little letter I in the middle of the word sin speaks of it. I, I'm the king of the castle. I will do it my way. I'm the arbiter of what is right and wrong. It's my life. I'll live it the way I choose. All of that and so much more is an expression of the foolishness of worshipping self or this world rather than the creator. And then he goes on later on in chapters 4 to talk about how, what is the answer to this problem? Well, the answer, we look back to the Old Testament. We've already mentioned Abraham and of how Abraham trusted God. This nobody, this non-entity called out of a backwater of Iraq or Iran or Iraq really in the ancient world. And yet we're told that he believed that God could be trusted that God kept his promises, that God was faithful. And he, because of that, we're told, it was credited to him as righteousness. How was he made right with God when the rest of the world was going pot? He was made right with God because he trusted in what God said and what he has done. And Paul, at the end of chapter 4, tells us that we too, can be put right with God. He says in verse 24, the end of chapter 4, and this also applies to us, to whom God will credit righteousness. That means he makes us right with him. He brings us into a right relationship with him. For us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. What is the answer to the real issues of our world today? Well, as a Christian and as a church, we have to say, ultimately, it is Jesus Christ and a returning and a repenting 
towards God. And therefore, he says at the beginning of chapter 5, therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then after exploring more fully what it is to be held in the power of sin and reminding us that the wages of sin is death, Romans 6 and verse 23, the rages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then a little diversion to see how he himself has struggled with the problem, that he wants to do the right thing, but within himself he finds this little voice, never the wee picture of our Willie sitting in the bucket, and the nice our Willie with the wee halo, and saying, yes, William, just you do the right thing. And then the wee demon, well, you know, the wee saying, oh, come on, Willie, just enjoy yourself and have a bit of fun and don't listen to that old thing, you know? And that battle that goes on within my heart, within your heart, within the heart of every man and woman and child that's ever lived in this world, Paul tells us the only answer to that, the only antidote to that struggle is found in Jesus. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? And Paul writes in Romans 7 verse 25, thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. In the Romans 8 and 1, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set me free from the law of sin and death. Therefore, there's words, there's statements, there's truths expressed, there's a Jesus that's revealed. And in one sense, we could just stop there. Because we've heard that, at least a very abridged verse. Who says, some folks spent six years going through the book of Romans. I've done it in about six minutes. Not the whole book, obviously. But at the end of the day, there is a therefore. What does that mean? What impact, import does that have on our lives? Because eternity, our eternity, will depend on what we say in our words and how they express the, the nature and attitude of our hearts. And after a diversion, important diversion about the state of the Jewish people and God's promise to them and that promise which is kept, which cannot be broken, and that does cause us to consider Israel and all the situations in our world today. He ends in chapter 11 with this. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Romans 11 and verse 33. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For, through, for from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. You see, these words, that word that became flesh, the truth that's involved in Jesus, the answer to the ailment of the human soul and to the condition of the human mind and the brokenness of the human world, all of that is meant to bring us to a point where we put up our hands and we just say, God, you're amazing and I need you. And I trust this morning in our own hearts, we too can say, oh God, how great you are, how small I am, 
Father, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour, I need you. Bless me now, my Savior, as I come to you. Therefore, if all of that is true, if all that can be trusted, if all of that stands the test of time and is God's final word to our world, Paul says, Romans 12, verse 1, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. I think it's fair to say that one of the most contentious issues within the life of the church today and indeed over this past maybe generation has been how we understand worship, what we do, what we sing, who does what, where and when, how much water is used in baptism or whether we pass how much wine is used or how it's shared or even the kind of wine that's used in our communion, how the preacher is dressed, how the members gather, that and so much more. The, the signs of worship and the formal outward appearance of worship has been and continues to be an area of great debate. Therefore, it's good to be reminded that as far as the living God is concerned, these things are trappings, things that are to be done in order, Different people decide what kind of order it should be done in. But at the end of the day, they're outward trappings. What is true worship? Is it the hymns that we sing, the clothes we wear, the form of service, the liturgy of the service, the water, the wine? No. True worship is in a life given over to Jesus. You see, my friends, if the foolishness of the world, the godlessness of the world, is when people give themselves over to themselves or to a hobby. And I've just been visiting somebody this week who has definitely given his life over to a hobby. You see his house. Give his life over to a hobby or to a career or to money or anything else. The antidote to that is to give your life over to God your creator, and the one who in Jesus Christ offers you mercy. Paul, of course, was writing at a time when, of course, sacrifices were seen. You could still today, you could still visit Herculaneum or Pompeii or other parts of the Roman Empire and see where people could buy animals in order that they could be given over for sacrifice at the various temples which littered the land of the ancient Roman Empire. Again, we don't live in that day, but we do live in a day, we do live in a day where people will sacrifice much their lives, their family life, their happiness in many ways, their marriage, so much in order to climb up that ladder of promotion in order to secure that position in your work, in order to find happiness. People will try all sorts of things and walk away from all sorts of relationships in order to secure happiness, whatever that may be. People do give themselves over to things or to people. And ultimately for the Christian, the 
antidote to that is giving yourself over to God. Of course, that impacts, as we'll see in a minute, on how we deal with our family, how we deal with our careers, a whole host of things. But nonetheless, first and foremost, who is the most important person in your life? And please don't say your husband or wife or your child. Can I be honest with you? Don't say that. Yes, these things are vitally important. But the most important person, if you're a professing Christian, is God. For he's your creator. At the end of the day, he's the one that you're going to stand before, that I'm going to stand before, and give an account to. And that's a challenge as we come in a minute or two to communion and share in the bread and wine. The God who all but bankrupted heaven for us and for our salvation. The call is to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And then he says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. It's interesting, isn't it, that at the very, that, well, if you picked it up at the end, that, those verses in Romans 1 that we read spoke about how humanity because they stopped glorifying God and giving thanks to him, but their thinking became futile. Nonsense actually means rubbish, actually means literally. And their hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. That's a very harsh comment on the reality of the world, that without God being at the heart of it, then everything else, however nice-sounding it may be, however wise-sounding it may be, however helpful it may be or harmful it may be, everything else will be flawed. I was listening to a program yesterday coming back from here Myers Hospital where I was visiting someone. And it was a drama on Radio 4. And at first I wondered what it was. It was different actors obviously playing out the part of different people who are hooked on, addicted to Spice. Now, I'm not talking here about cinnamon in your tapes. I'm talking about a drug which is not, no, it's not the cocaine and the cannabis and the heroin, that sort of thing, but it's a drug that people have effectively given themselves over to or been taken over by. And in that array of people, there was a homeless person, there was somebody who was living on their own, there was a vicar, and there were different people playing out the part and talking about their struggle with life and with this addiction. And why were they doing it? But they all were different people, all from different situations, but they all were struggling because basically, including the vicar, wasn't sure what the point of life was really about. Why am I here? Who am I? What's it all about? Where am I going? And what about those things deep within us that we're ashamed of and struggle with? 
and haunt us in the middle of the night. And the sad reality is today that many young people at an age when they shouldn't be having to face these questions are facing and thinking those questions and are turning to all sorts of things, including drugs and also sadly suicide in order to find an answer to their life issues. And in the same way as Paul says at the beginning of chapter 2 to the more self-righteous religious people, well, that's not us and we're not like that, Paul would say to us through his word this morning, those of us who are sitting here a bit older, you know, the society we have is a society that we've contributed to. It's not just their problem. It's my problem. It's our problem. What is the answer? Well, while it might be simplistic or sound simplistic, the answer is getting focused on God. Paul tells us, and he leads on from that. That's why this second verse follows on from the first verse. As we give ourselves over to God, as we enter into a relationship with him, as we experience his mercy and his grace and forgiveness in our lives, and all of that made possible through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the divine counselor who comes from the very presence, who is God and comes from God to live within the lives of all those who put their trust in Jesus. So, you may not have done very well at school. You may not have fancy degrees or a great position of status within society. But your mind and my mind can be transformed can be renewed so that we understand our world, we understand what's going on in our world, we understand our part in the world, we understand who we are in the world, we understand the responsibilities of living in the world, including caring for our families and providing a secure and loving environment, all the things that are right and good and proper and true, but we can begin to see these things and work through these things with God's help and God's wisdom. even more, we can begin to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. I think it was Colin, wasn't it? Our Colin was looking for the wee band on his wrist that he wears, you know, and there's the one, I think the one he has is different, but these wee bands that were very popular back now, and the, no, what would Jesus do? How can we know that when we're faced with a situation with the family? or at our working environment, or in the world. What would Jesus do? Well, we can have the mind of Christ. God enables us through the Spirit as we give ourselves to him first to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Just take a wee minute before we come to take the bread and wine of communion. Just think of what that means. Who are we talking about? I, I, I get my phone. I, I well, wisely, unwisely, opened up you, you, who or whatever one of these things. Some pictures of the NASA, you know, the explorers and the Mars, you know, and this, they're beaming out all the time photographs. And I, I looked at one or two, and that's I get every practically every day now. There's four photographs appearing. It's really struck me. It's amazing. 
that's only Mars. That's nothing compared to, you know, the planets going around these suns that are way out in the middle of nowhere, you know. The same God who holds those planets in its, their place, the God whose mighty word sustains all that is, who brought it into being and sustains it by his mighty power and will roll it up at the end of time, that God, his wisdom can be known in your life with the issues of the kids or the problems of old age or the hassles of midlife. Is that enough, Phil? I don't know about you, but I think that's amazing. That's just mind-blowing. How big a God we have. And yet, through the Spirit, as we give ourselves to Him, He enables us as our minds are renewed and transformed, to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Therefore, it's only be one, isn't it? You could easily read it and just, well, that's fine, move on. Maybe was kind of stuck or for what to say at this point. It's vital. Stop. Think, reassess, review, repent, and re-engage with the God who has done so much for us and for our world in Jesus Christ.